I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. I am so delighted to be sitting across from Miranda Popke today. Uh, Miranda has written for the New Republic, the New Yorker's Page Turner blog, the Paris Review Daily, the Hairpin and the All RIP, GQ and New York Magazine's The Cut. And her debut novel is called Topics of Conversation. Welcome. Thank you, Maris. Um, and thank you so much for inviting me to have this conversation. Oh, I'm I'm delighted. So first we should mention that I met you how many years ago? Probably a decade ago. A decade ago when you were an editor or I mean I, was I know an assistant. I, I but and I was working on the editorial side, but working on the editorial side. Is what the I was doing way. was, yeah, e-ma- emailing authors to ask them to approve jacket copy. <laughs> but but you also acquired some of your own stuff. I did eventually move into an associate editor position, and um, I acquired Emily Gold's novel Friendship, which is, I mean, continues one of the to best. Be, yeah, a real favorite of mine. Yeah, and she has a new novel coming out. I can't wait. Yeah. And if you can't edit it, then I'm glad you found a different publisher. Yeah. Tell me about what it's like to have a first novel out as someone who worked in editorial. Well, it's very easy to ask too many questions, I think, from this side (laughs) of the divide. Um, I know exactly how I coordinated the production process with authors when I was an assistant and when I was a an editor. And I, I just know too much. So I've really, really tried 
through throughout the production process, I tried as hard as possible just not to ask too many questions right. and to accept the fact that they were hiding important things from me <laughs> because it was really best that I not know them. You are an author now. You are precious. <laughs> yeah. You are fragile. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, that's true. I thought – I also <laughs> thought be, that because I had been on the other side that I would be better able to manage my expectations and better able to – sort of give myself the pep talks that I as an assistant had given yes. to nervous authors. Yes. But it's like advice. You can be you really can't. great at giving advice, but you can't tell yourself. No, it's like it's massage. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um so I tried to be as chill as possible. I'm not a chill human, but I tried to be <laughs> as chill as possible. Um and everyone at Knopf was really lovely. And now we're into the part of the process where I actually have no behind-the-scenes knowledge because I was never a publicist. So now I'm in a space of really not knowing either side of things, which is a, a sort of scary space to be. Um, what I've what I've found, my book came out last week. Last week, I was trying to count six <laughs> days ago. Um, is that when things, when like lots of things are happening? Yeah. Um, like on a on the on pub day or like on a day when I'm doing a reading later, um, it's really easy to just try to get things like take things in and try and like do what you have to do, and um, you don't really process it all, or I don't process sure. it all. Um, yeah, but then so. uh, afterwards, um, there's like this. Uh, like in the days after, in the days right after pub, I was like having all of these random emotions oh, I'm sure. that made no sense and were not related to anything happening. Um, but they were just like me having a like a an emotional hangover sure. from not being able to have any emotions like on the day of pub. I think that I think that's a pretty common experience that you're talking about. But I do like the idea that you are relinquishing control to the people who are in charge of your book, just as you might say, your narrator. <laughs> Excellent transition. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Wants to do sometimes in, in her in her sexual relationships. Yes. Um, I think, well, I'll say a couple of things. One is that uh, as a younger woman, there were not a lot of pop culture artifacts that I consumed that had this that, – that presented a woman as in charge of her sexual or romantic destiny. Mm -hmm. um, and that, I think, is changing. But, you know, throw a rock and you'll hit a romantic comedy in which uh, the the man – who is pursuing the woman is just clearly a psychopath. And yep. like, if you were the woman, you'd be like, 911, uh, yep. I have a stalker. Uh, so, Say anything sticks out. Yeah. I mean, I love that movie. It's a great movie. I love John Cusack. In He's that very movie. charming. Yeah. But in real life, I, that's ter that's terrifying. Yeah. There's a man in a trench coat outside of my bedroom window holding up a boombox. That's obviously like not. Something that you would want. But, you know, our desires form around the things that we are presented right. with. So, you know, you watch a movie like Moonstruck enough times, and yep. I did watch Moonstruck over and over again. And again, 
I think that that's an excellent movie. I'm so glad Cher has an Oscar. One uh-huh. of Nicolas Cage's finest performances. Oh, my gosh. He has a wooden hand. <laughs> he has a wooden hand. He has a he, wooden hand. It's, it's like a clown hand almost when he wears his – I mean, I'm so I, – I, am I being ableist? I don't think so. <laughs> because <laughs> – um, yeah, she, he he lifts her up by that hand, and, yeah. and that's how you know that it's real. Yeah, I mean, and it's, I mean, the the wooden hand is a real prop. Um, like there's that yes. scene where he like is holding his hand out and yelling like, "Johnny took my hand. <laughs> yes. Johnny took my bride. Johnny has his bride. Johnny has his hand." And it is both totally serious and also hilarious. I mean. I think at the time when I saw it, I was like, holy, like, this is so important and serious. And then it's only, it's only, I watched last week, Moonstruck, and oh, wow. was like, oh, <laughs> this is hilarious. It is, but it also, I don't know, it still works for me. Mm-hmm. Like, I still see this sort of silly, maybe a little frightening display of male rage. And I'm like, hmm. Yeah, sexy. Interesting. Yeah. And I do think that male rage is something that is so interest it's it's a subject of such interest in popular culture. We were speaking on the day that the Joker just swept all of the nominations for the Oscars. Uh, uh, <laughs> that's enough. Of that. yeah. Um it's yeah, it's such an it's it's such a subject of interest and the thing that popular culture is interested in, it's only natural that someone absorbing that culture sort of uncritically would find that to be of interest in their own romantic life. So that was that was one thing. Like I think my narrator is attracted to the idea that she might be able to just give herself over to um male violence or male rage or male control because that is the sort of romantic paradigm right. that we have been presented with, at least in terms of sort of popular heterosexual culture. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is that it is really hard to be a person in the world. I think that's always been true. I think it's it's really true right now. Um, I'm a, you know, middle class white woman with a dog and a husband. And I same, have- Same, same. Yeah. I, I have a lot of choice in my life. Right. Um, but also th- things are so bad and terrible mm-hmm. and all of the choices that I might make seem very important mm-hmm. um, and it seems very crucial that you not make the wrong choice. Yes. Um, and so I think it's it's very hard to figure out like what kind of a person should I be or – As Sheila Hetty might Yeah, ask. exactly. Like h- how should a person be? I thought that is a genius book title and also <laughs> a question that I genuinely think about sure, quite a lot. Sure, of course. And I think it's easy – for the narrator to think to herself, you know what? What if we just took a bunch of options off the table? Mm. So tell me a little more about how you set up this novel, the structure of it, how it came to you, um, and even your writing style, which um, which I love. And it's like very unique right away. Thank um, you. I sort of love the... I was just trying to do an, a, a thing where I trailed off. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, um, as as one of my very discerning critics on Goodreads noted, yes. many of my sentences are run-on sentences. Um, I did want to 
give my narrator a voice that would allow the reader to enter the space of her mind Mm -hmm. um, as fully as possible. And I don't know about your mind or your listeners' minds, but mine doesn't operate in complete sentences and neat paragraphs. It um, fixates on things and then let's go. And you don't want to recreate that exactly because that would be a true nightmare to read. Right. Um, But I did want her to have a voice that was distinctive and that was also to a certain extent without making the whole thing completely unreadable, mimicking the particular way in which her mind churns. Her mind does a lot of churning. Sure. Um, In terms of structure – the novel's very, very clearly inspired uh, structurally by Rachel Cusk's Outline series. Yeah. Um, I read Outline. I had a British galley of Outline. That's a good brag. Yeah. In like <laughs> 2014. Okay. And I was going on a road trip and I read it at the very beginning of my road trip. And I, it's one of those books where you can remember exactly where you were mm-hmm. when you read it mm-hmm. um, and like what I was wearing and the emotions that it provoked. Um, I read part of it in Greenwood Cemetery, weirdly. Um, but it opened up this space of real possibility in terms of what one could do with a novel structure. Right. So the outline series they're told of as, as a series of conversations and i think that in in some ways my novels more conventionally structured because um i do allow the reader to spend more time with the narrator yes. than i think cusk is interested in right but it's yeah the inspiration's pretty clear um it's it's funny um i I'm very glad that I was allowed to do this, that I was allowed to write this, yeah. this book in conversations. But it still to me feels a little bit like a cheat or like I'm getting away with something because <laughs> the problem that I was confronting when I started this novel was I know how to tell a story to a friend. Right. I don't know how to structure a plot. I don't know how to structure uh, a short story. This was the second – I started working on this the second year of my MFA. And the first year of my MFA, I was handing in stories that were like – quite plotless, mm-hmm. um, and that were also really sapped of emotion. Um, I was very, very worried about being emotional on the page and about being vulnerable on the page. And I think that's because of the kind of person I am, but I think that that is also because as a woman, I don't want to be seen as a writer of like lady feelings. Lady feelings, hysteria. Exactly. Um, and I really admire writers who just like – female writers who are just like, no, like like gas pedal all. all the way down mm-hmm, to the floor. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to describe my menstrual blood. <laughs> I love it. Um, but I was, I was so, so scared of doing that. Um, and somehow having women tell each other stories um, allowed me to get around this, the problem of plot. Mm-hmm. Um, it opened up this, this possibility – in terms of linking with the Cusk trilogy and and seeing that as a possible model, um, and then it um, it also just like it made it fun to write. Yeah, because I was like, I mean, fun. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So I'm not, I, I can't imagine you were smiling the entire time you were writing it. But no, but it made it. Um, it made it, I guess, more important than fun. It was. Occasionally fun, but it made it interesting to write. Right. Because I was trying to write conversations that I would want to be in 
with people. It's almost like you were writing to um, address what you wanted to see in the world. I would, I would, <laughs> say, that's, I would say that's accurate, Maris. Amazing, Miranda. Um, Let's talk about some of these conversations a little bit more. One of one of the things that really stuck out to me was that alcohol plays a big role in many of these stories. And the narrator thinks that conversation can be an erotic thing. And I think both of those things, eroticism and conversation, come out more when you're uninhibited. Yes. And so, hence alcohol. Yeah. I have found in my own life that a lot of the most intimate conversations that I have with my close friends do happen at the end of a long Mm -hmm. evening of wine, bourbon, martinis, whatever it is we're drinking. Um, You get to a place where you are able to let yourself say what it is you want to say Mm -hmm. as opposed to what it is that you think you should be saying or the same things that you have been saying that are more of a half-truth. Right. And I I don't – I'm not sure if it's ever possible to tell the whole truth, but I think that you can get closer. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that for people – and this is for myself specifically, I am a fairly closed person. Mm -hmm. Um, It is – difficult, I think, to get to know me. And for that reason, I cherish my friends friendships very intensely because once I have sort of allowed myself to be vulnerable with someone and mm. welcomed their vulnerability, I want to like honor and preserve that. But it has always been easier for me to have like a little bourbon. And then be like, all right, here's the real story. Yeah, this is the thing that happened. (laughs) But for the narrator, of course, this becomes a crutch. And I think there's a kind of drinking that is uh, permission, that Mm -hmm. is is giving a kind of permission, Mm -hmm. um, or that is social, fun, recreational. um, And then there is a kind of drinking that is – a wish to be out of your body and out of the world, right? Um, a wish to push a kind of eject button. And I think that that is the kind of drinking she eventually falls into. She doesn't want to be in her body. She doesn't want to have her brain. Yeah. She wants to forget herself. Right. And I, d- I don't think <laughs> – as Book of the Month Club has cautioned its readers, <laughs> there is no plot. So I don't think it's a spoiler to say that she does eventually um, quit drinking. And I will also say that that plot point wasn't inspired directly by anyone but anyone in my life. But there are a number of people I'm close to who have recently – by recently, I mean over the past four or five years right. – stopped drinking or radically reduced mm-hmm. their drinking. Um, and it has been interesting then to reexamine my own relationship with right. alcohol because it's much easier to 
it's if everyone is sort of drinking with the kind of energy that one drinks in their um, early and mid twenties, yeah, um, unsustainable. I would exactly, <laughs> but sort of there are so many. I think I mean, this is not true of all social circles, but in my social circle, it was very common, right. and you would never, you know, think to yourself, "Oh, this is indicative of a problem." Right. Um, but then you know that is, as you said, unsustainable. So it's been it's been fruitful, I think, for me to think about the ways in which I wish to eject myself from the world Mm -hmm. and from my body and from my brain and what value there might be in like staying present. Exactly. Mm. Um, And noticing, noticing more and sort of ruminating less. (laughs) But, but that's what makes it so amazing that you wrote this novel because it feels so incredibly personal and it feels vulnerable. And it's not you, you're not the narrator, but um, I do think you make the narrator feel so vulnerable. Um, And that's a feat in and of itself, right? Um, That's very kind of you to say. I will, I got one question (laughs) from a man about whether the book was autobiographical. And the thing that I said, which is true, is that none of the events of the novel have happened to me or anyone I know, um, not as described. And like the narrator and I share certain traits. For example, we're both very sweaty. Um, <laughs> but the thing that is true and the thing that I hope readers respond to is every single emotion that is in the book is one that I have had or touched or experienced in a different context. Right. But one that I wrote because it was true to an experience, an emotional experience that I had had. Um, another thing I notice, I mean, and and this seems very intentional throughout the work that I didn't get to count. I I meant to underline how many times a character uses the word cliche. It's something that one is maybe too aware of. Yes. One is writing a novel. But, but even experiencing the world, it's it's interesting to think like okay so we there are all these clichés that we know about especially when it comes to heterosexual relationships right um and you're going to feel some of those ways sometimes like that's, that's I mean the truism it's this is also a cliche but the cliche about clichés is that they became clichés for a reason right 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 and i do believe that i think I think like um, many people who hold themselves to unreasonably – I'll just say unreasonable standards. I'm not sure if my narrator's standards are high. They're just unreasonable. But like many people who hold themselves to unreasonable standards, um, my narrator never wants to experience a feeling anyone else has experienced. Right, right, right. She wants her story to be different and fresh and she – is frustrated with herself when she, for example, has an affair with a professor, which <laughs> is, alas, a cliche. Um, the problem, of course, is – well, you it's very difficult to construct a completely new story. Oh, yeah. I would say it is impossible for me to imagine how one might do so. Um, you're always sort of building from – the cultural artifacts that you have around you and that are important to you um, or that 
you know, you have absorbed. And so she is in this bind where she really, really wants to be in a story that is only hers. Mm -hmm. But she is also filled with desires and uh, ideas and expectations that she has inherited. And that is a real struggle for her. And I think the desire to live, um, the desire to evade cliche sort of fights with her desire to a sort of deeper desire, which is to follow these scripts that she has been handed. Right. And so she wants to be the smartest woman in the room and create her own narrative. But it's, how many narratives are there? It's hard to do. I mean, I think one of the real, um, really exciting things that has, exciting things that have been happening, one of the really exciting things <laughs> that has been happening. That sounds wrong, but I think I got the verb and the subject yes. <laughs> there matched correctly. Um, is that there has been an attempt, I mean, not necessarily wholly successful, but an attempt to widen the the, the sort of not widen. I'm gonna walk that back. There's been an attempt to encourage and support a greater diversity of cultural creators. Right. Um, again, I don't, you know, if you look at the numbers, it's been sort of tragically, the successes have been sort of tragically small. Um, but I think every time you have someone who is not um, a straight white guy, or honestly, a straight white yeah. girl, yeah. Um, telling a story, that is an opportunity for a new kind of narrative. Maybe yes. not absolutely whole cloth, totally never seen it before, but a new kind of narrative that is going to have a different – that is going to place emphasis on different experiences and, and yes. different emotions. And I think that that is a benefit not only for the person who sees themselves represented in that story, but also for the people who don't and who then – Understand, yeah, yeah, their understanding of like the multivarious human experience, <laughs> yes. and also because I think that there are things that people might discover about themselves if they consumed a wider array of cultural products, yes, um, sort of tendencies or desires or interests that they don't know they have because those things have not been made available to them, or those things have not been presented to them as desirable. Um, I'm opening your book now because I think you'll know what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. One of the most unique sections of your book, which I love, is you have a list of works not cited um, that your book is in conversation with. And it and it kind of runs the gamut. Uh, I mean, Moonstruck's in there. W one of the ones that, that really struck me was seeing um, – Norman Rush's mating, followed by Goodfellas and Casino, followed by the song Push, written by Matt. I, I don't know how to say his last name and Rob Thomas, but of Matchbox 20. Oh, yes. Matchbox 20. That august <laughs> cultural producer. Um, yeah. Uh, I will say about the song Push, 
which is, I think, a song about domestic violence, but like from the perspective of the domestic abuser. It's I've been it's been a while since I've actually listened to it, but I have such strong memories of being like. 13 or 14 and listening to the song over and over again and looking at the lyrics in the booklet and being like, what is this song about? about? And do I want what this song mm-hmm. is about? Do I want this in my life? Mm-hmm. And thinking to myself, like, I know that violence is bad, so it can't possibly be about what it seems to be. It has about. to be some metaphor, some like f- fancy Matchbox 20 yeah. euphemism. Yeah, like there has to be a decoder ring I can use uh-huh. so that this song will be about something other than what seems to be an abusive relationship. But I think that that maybe is just what the song is about. Yeah. Um, and there's a reason I was fascinated by that. Mm-hmm. So. The works not cited, I want to I wanna cite the inspiration for that. Yes. Um, Azreen Vanderfleet yes. Illumi, uh, her first, I believe it's her first novel, it's called Frog Healer, um, and it was published by Dorothy, um, which is a, a lovely yes. small press. Um, the I read that book as part of my MFA, um, and the... End of that book has I don't I don't know what she calls the section, but it's a list of influences, mm-hmm. things that she was thinking about and reading and watching. And her list is admirably, sort of undisputably high culture. Mm-hmm. And I was um really taken with the idea of using of of sort of, you know, letting letting readers know what had been on my mind yes. while I was writing I but I I was also I was I was also of the of the mind that I couldn't you know just present to readers the the sort of most acceptable things that I had been consuming sure um, sure which is why like yes uh like pretty early on in the list we've got Frasier seasons 1 through 11 good <laughs> by David Angel Peter Casey and David Lee um I watched 11 seasons of Frasier while writing this novel. And, like, mm. I don't know if that affected this novel. Um, I do know that my, it's like, adolescent sexuality has been, like, permanently affected by the fact that, like, Niles Crane was as, like, wh- when I was, like, 10 or 11, like, really hot to me. Mm-hmm. It's really into it. Um, but, yeah, it seemed important to the reader to – or it seemed important to me to let the reader know – you know, this is all the garbage I was eating. Yeah, I mean, and and that you don't write a book in a cultural vacuum. Like there are things that are constantly being input in your brain yeah. while this is going on, which yeah. I think this is a very explicit way to to show that. Um, talk to me just for a minute about the Norman Mailer chapter because that's that that really was special to me. Um, thank you for saying that. That is a very special to me chapter as well. And I think it's one that many readers just do not connect to, which is totally fine. Um, There are different parts of the book that are going to speak to different readers. Mm -hmm. I was writing this book in the fall of 2017. And I was in – is that right? No. Yes, that is right. The fall of 2017. And and then into the winter of 2017-2018. And I was in a class where we were sort of working – 
with previously existing texts and Hmm. um, thinking about how to transform them Um, and looking at other people who used previously existing text in their own work. Um, I don't know how I got on the Norman Mailer train, um, but there was at some point an interview that his official biographer did with, I believe, a a woman from the Village Voice Mm. in which he briefly seems to forget that Norman Mailer stabbed his second wife, um, Adele Morales Mailer. And I don't know if that was the beginning of my interest or the tipping point, but it seemed very strange to me that that was not the first thing that anybody would yeah, top exactly. of mind. Yeah. He nearly killed her. Um, but but he was such a genius, Miranda. It's true. I mean, I think the saddest thing about the stabbing, I mean, a, apart from the fact that she was gravely injured and nearly died, the saddest thing to me is the ways in which she tried to protect him after mm-hmm. and the ways in which she was nevertheless punished for I don't know, having the temerity to go to the hospital. I'm not even sure what the what the anger against her was. I mean, I guess there was there's this moment where she says, yes, he stabbed me. So first she says that she fell on broken glass. Right. And then she says, yes, he stabbed me. And then ultimately she says, I was too drunk to remember. And he spends a few days in a psychiatric hospital. He is convicted of third-degree assault, I believe, and assigned some community service. Mm -hmm. And he re-enters the literary community. Mm -hmm. And there is a mailer quote. What he says is, like, when he re-entered, like, the first time he was back at a literary party, the the level of warmth in the room was five degrees less. Oh, no. He was – Five degrees canceled. <laughs> yeah. And I think even Norman Mailer, like you can you can sort of read that quote and you can tell that even he was surprised. Even he thought that like there would be more of a consequence. Right. Um but yeah, there was uh this was right around the time I was thinking about Norman Mailer right around the time that um the list of shitty media men was mm-hmm. going around. Um, or, you know, I guess that list actually circulated for fewer than 12 hours, but it was something that was being discussed. I used to work in publishing. Right. I was very grateful not to be in New York at that moment, mm-hmm. um, but I did have friends in New York, friends who were still working in publishing, and we were having conversations mm-hmm. um, about this. And I had the thought, would it be possible for a writer of Norman Mailer's stature today – to stab his wife at a party and face no social consequences? And I think the answer is no, mm-hmm. but I think that we are not as far from a literary yes. world in which that was possible as we might think we are. I think that's probably true. So that was something I was thinking about. And I tried to I, I tried to sort of translate into a modern context for a while. Um, sort of solve that question for myself, and that that didn't work. Um, and ultimately, I just found Adele's story so compelling mm-hmm. that I wanted to make that th- that I thought it was worth sort of having 
having that be a section, even if it's a slightly, I think it can be a slightly um, surprising moment in the novel. Right. Because it's not a conversation. The, the narrator is watching a YouTube video. Um, Describing it very accurately. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe. Um, so it's not, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a break in style from the rest of the conversations, but it seemed important to bring her story into the into the forefront, however briefly. I love that. Um, very briefly. Mm. Tell me what, what garbage you're putting into your brain now. Um, and, and good stuff. And good stuff. Um, so I will do a couple of old book recommendations that yeah. I've just um, – okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a couple of old books that I've recently read that have – I think I, th- I think and hope will be important to the next thing I'm working on. Okay. Um, one of which is Helen Oyeyemi's uh, Mr. Fox. Oh, yeah. Never read her novels before oh. because I'm a dummy. Yeah. Um, and now I'm so excited because she is someone who's written, you know. So many and they're so good. Yeah. Mr. Fox is amazing. I'm not going to try and describe its plot. Um, I'm just going to strongly recommend it. Um, and then uh, – Sula by Toni Morrison Hmm. um, is also a book that I hadn't read. And I'm in several book clubs and we read – in one of them we read Sula and in in another we read Jazz. Um, And I will strongly recommend – no one needs me to recommend Toni Morrison. But (laughs) she's she's quite a good author. She's pretty good, huh? Yeah, she's pretty good. Um, I will also put a plug in for my dear, dear, dear friend Zan Romanoff's novel, Look. I'm very excited for it. It's a, a brilliant novel. It's, you know, it's YA, but I think it really is for adults as well. Um, and it's about sort of female sexuality and sexual identity um, and also the internet. Mm-hmm. And that comes out in a couple months, yeah? Uh, end of March, March end of 31st. March. Um, and I'll also say uh, I watched the Dublin Murder Squad yeah. on Stars. And I think it's so interesting and I think not good, but I want to talk to someone about it. So if you out there (laughs) have seen the Dublin Murder Squad and you want to talk about about, uh, Rob Riley um, with me, I am am here. I am – I have to get on that because I love the books. It's – Okay. <laughs> it's so fascinating. Um, and yeah, again, d- d- watch it and then get okay. back to me. Yeah, we will. Thank you so much for being here. This is great. Um, thank you so much, Maris. This is really fun. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.